Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Chris. You know, a challenge for me uh, has always been grasping the idea of trusting someone else's word. There's various reasons for that. Some of it relates to my, uh, some personal experiences in my formative years. Another big piece is my natural bent. I have just naturally a lot of doubts, a lot of self-doubt, and a uh, sometimes streak of skepticism. Now, that all has big implications spiritually. Particularly early on, it filtered into my search for God and really my search for certainty. I didn't have a concept of what it looked like to, to trust the words of Jesus. For me to believe in God, well, here's what I needed. For me to believe in God, I needed to have an experience. I needed a miracle, a sign. If only I could witness something that couldn't be explained without God, then I could escape my uncertainty. Now, not only that, but this, those experiences and my temperament affected my, my sense of security. My certainty that God was in my life, even though I had invited him in many, many times. If I could not simply trust his words, then it was left to me. It was left to me to do something extraordinary, something beyond normal, to prove that I was worthy of salvation. If I did not know how to rest in someone else's words, then who did it depend on? It all depended on me. Can anybody relate to that? Do you have difficulty trusting someone else's word? Ever been hurt by a, by a broken promise? Could all of that spill into the way we relate to God? I think so. I think so. Life has a way of shaping us. Yeah, it's one thing if the plumber doesn't show up on time. That's, that's annoying. It's one thing if your boss says, we're going to get out by three, and then another shipment rolls in, and you're done at seven. That's frustrating. But it's a whole other reality. When you give your heart away to another person, alter your life goals for them, and then they break their promise. Or when your dad says, yeah, I'll be at that recital, and he doesn't show up again. When promises like that go south, wow, that makes it difficult to trust anyone, including God. To cope, self-protection kicks in like armor around your heart, and the conclusion that you arrive at is, who is the only person I can trust in? Who is the only person I can depend on? Myself. Well, this next story in our journey through John's gospel is about trust. It's about faith. It's about a word. It's about a promise. And how that faith can grow into something very, very special. So, very simple plan this morning. We're going to share a story uh, from Jesus. Look at his words simply. And... Uh, ask 
ask how it can change us, okay? Pray with me. Father, um, in this world where promises are taken so casually and commitments are broken all the time, teach us what it would look like to love you and to trust in your words and help us to understand what it might look like to grow uh, in our understanding of you and to grow in our faith. And uh, Father, for the person who's come this morning and is perhaps far from you, might uh, they see something in your life and in what you ask them to do that would help them take one step closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are in John chapter 4, verse 43. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like, or I'm going to read it here from the, uh, on the screen to the end of chapter, chapter 4. Okay? After two days, Jesus departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Now, there's several things right off the bat that are confusing. If Jesus does not receive honor in his hometown, well, then why do the Galileans welcome him? Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. I think here that John is using a little irony to talk about the faith of the Galileans. Now, remember, Jesus had just emerged from Samaria, despised Samaria, Yet they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And though the Galileans, his people in his hometown, did welcome Jesus, they did not relate to him in the same way. Now, we get a little taste of this. Just turn the page back. John chapter 2, verse 23. You remember how it said these Galileans had seen Jesus do miracles in Jerusalem? Look at this commentary in John chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name 
when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in a man. Okay, here's a little bit of the mystery uncovered. There's a fault line. There's a fault line in their faith. Now, the Samaritans, they believed in Jesus without any miracles being done. They believed after spending two days with Christ. Faith emerging from seeing miracles can be a beginning point. But I think this is the fault line. Here's the fault line. The fault line is being attracted to the power of God without seeking the person of God. Again, let me say it again. The fault line is being attracted to the power of God without seeking the person of God. Now, the second part of this story that's confusing is Jesus' apparent annoyance at a father's desperate request. Who is his dad? This official, and some versions say royal official. We don't know a great deal about him. Scholars, many scholars, believe him to be a servant in Herod's court. Wouldn't make him very popular. He could have been a Jew. He could have been a Gentile. But he had servants. He had influence. He had wealth. But he could not fix this fever. No doubt he had heard about Jesus, this miracle worker. So he traveled 16 miles, likely by foot, from Capernaum to Cana in order to see Christ. And so when he arrives in Cana, we might imagine this, when he arrives in Cana, he doesn't know where to go. And so he might ask some townspeople, where is this Jesus staying? And they might give him some directions. Well, you know, walk down this street, down that block, turn left at that restaurant and so forth. And and then he's staying at, you know, so-and-so's house. And again, remember, these folks had been hearing, some had seen Christ work at the Passover feast. And so it's easy to imagine that a crowd followed this dad to see what was Jesus was going to do, to see how he'd respond. Now, in verses 47 and verse 49, the Greek tense in these verbs infers that the dad is asking repeatedly and that he is asking with absolute desperation. Now, I've told you the story before of when my youngest son had a seizure and it threw him from the top bunk. And so late at night, I ran over immediately and banged on the door of my neighbor, Karen Lojo. Crying out, literally crying out for help. A nurse, Karen's a nurse. I know some of you parents, you sometimes, you felt that same desperation that this father is feeling right here in this moment. And that's why Jesus' response, this brusque, stiff response, catches us off guard. What is Christ thinking? Well, here's one thing that might help us to know what's going on. Many versions, if you have actually an older version, King James or New American Standard, many versions actually read 
you people. That word you in verse 48 is a plural word. So many versions read it this way. You people will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. Well, it seems as if Jesus' words are spoken to this man and to others that have crowded around. There's a crowd here to see what Christ would do. Now, this is what I believe he's saying to the crowd. I believe he's saying this to the crowd, that too much interest in raw miracles is spiritually dangerous. And I believe this, by the way, because when we get to John chapter 6, Jesus will return to this very same theme with far greater detail. You might question this. Are you saying, am I saying that miracles have no value? Absolutely not. Miracles have value as a witness to what is true if, if they lead to an everyday personal faith. If they lead to an everyday personal faith. So, what about this dad? Here's his dad. He's standing in front of his only hope with little sense of who Jesus is beyond he could do miracles. What is Jesus saying to him? Well, it appears that this dad, like us often, is being tested. Yet even in his testing, as the testing clarifies what he truly wants, Jesus is drawing this man into something beyond, something even greater than this immediate need. The dad, for his part, can go nowhere else. He's squeezed. And the father continues to say, even at this seeming rebuff, the father continues to say to Jesus, come down before my child dies. With that, even if it's just a little bit of a seed of faith, with that, he shows the humble patience required in Jesus' followers. He persists. And so Jesus says back to him in verse 50, Go, go, your son will live. Now, it's interesting here as well. He's asked Jesus to come down with him to Capernaum. But Jesus will not follow. This man is being asked to believe before seeing the outcome. And look at verse 50. He goes. He goes believing the word that Jesus had spoken to him. What are we seeing here? I think we're seeing an evolving, growing faith. Remember, this is what John had said of the Samaritans. They believed because, why? Because of the word spoken to him. And then there's this amazing encounter. The servants have come to tell him of the joyous news. And this guy, you can see how his mind's working. It's pretty cool. He wants to make sure that, he wants to eliminate the possibility that this was a natural, physical recovery. And so he says, what time did the recovery begin? And they gave the time. And then he knew that's the exact same time that Jesus had spoken those words. Then look at verse 53. Now, this is beautiful. See verse 53 now. Now he believes. 
Well, I thought he believed before. He's reached a different measure of faith. He believes without qualifiers. His faith goes beyond the desperate need of the moment. This man has experienced the giver of life. His son's life has been reclaimed. And for the readers of John's gospel, the first century readers of John's gospel, we might envision them seeing how this all connects to John 3.16. There, Jesus argued, John wrote of Jesus that for God so loved not just the nation of Israel, but God loved the cosmos. He loved the world. And we see that world ever pushing outward. It began with a religious teacher. It moved to a relationally wrecked woman. From there to an entire town labeled outside of God's reach. And now to this royal official in Herod's court. This man's faith is growing. And look at verse 53. It's also reproduced in others. The entire household believes. His testimony, like the Samaritan woman's, helps others embrace faith. The story ends in verse 54. An interesting statement says that this is the second sign that Jesus did. Now, this could be, again, confusing. Well, didn't he do other signs during the Passover feast in Jerusalem? Yes. But look specifically at what he says. This is the second sign having come from Judea to Galilee. The second sign done outside of Judea. They were done outside of Jerusalem, which is where Jesus heads to next, where he will face even stiffer rejection. So, two times Jesus has come to Galilee. Twice he's revealed God's glory. One in a very joyful, festive event. Another in the most dire of circumstances. One showed that Jesus was the ultimate bridge to God, the ultimate forgiver. The other, that he was Lord of life itself. That's the story. That's the story. Now, let's ask, it's a simple question. How does this story relate? How does this story change us today? Well, first... The clearest application from the very beginning is that we can turn to Jesus in our desperation. And he will teach us to trust his word. And so if you are in a desperate situation this morning, cry out to Christ the same way that this father did on behalf of his son. You might consider praying with someone before you leave this morning. Could be a friend or a pastor or a small group leader. I'll be here after the service in order to offer prayer. That may be the simple application for you this morning is to tell someone, I just I, I, I need you to step into my world and to pray with me, to pray for me for this desperate situation that I find myself in today. Will you pray with me? Will you, will you pray for me? There's a second lesson here, I think, as well. And it, it, it's, it's about a level of faith. Because John uses this word believe in a, in a broad way. And what we learn about the faith of the Galileans is that there is a level of faith that does not change us. 
There is a level of faith that does not bear any fruit. The Galileans welcome Jesus, but they keep him at a safe distance. It's, it's a faith that's superficial. It's short-term. It's sign-seeking. It's fascinated by the power of God, but not interested in the person of God. This man's story gives us a living example of how faith develops and what real faith looks like. We might summarize quickly by saying genuine faith pushes past quitting points, lives beyond desperate moments, and it bears fruit as well. Rather than being short-lived and superficial, it is informed. It's a long-term commitment. It's a raw faith that relies primarily on God's Word without conditions. It does not rely ultimately on miracle, nor even a specific answer to prayer. By the way, this is a kind of faith that is really pleasing to God. It delights God. God enjoys it. The parent who only hears from their child when they need something, car keys, credit card, food, knows the frustration of being asked to provide without any real relating. Conversely, how much delight and joy do parents receive when their child engages them in a personal, loving way, when they're grateful, when they affirm their parents for being more than an ATM machine. All of us have had the drain of emotion from being used, of having something extracted from us as if we were an object, a thing, rather than a person. FYI, God is also a person capital P person. You and I have personality. You and I have creativity. You and I have self-awareness. That did not evolve by accident. You have that because that is what God is like. And you are created in His image. Your personality derives from His. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, particularly through the prophets, God expresses emotions of pain, of hurt, because his people keep using him without ever relating to him. God desires not a contract with you, but a covenant, a covenant of promise and of love. So when the crisis is over in your life, is your faith better? Has your faith grown? Do you relate to God differently? Or is it back to normal? Put you in my back pocket. Call you when I need you. God desires to relate to you and to me on an everyday basis. He desires to speak to you every day and strengthen your faith through His Word. And to have you walk away from that encounter with a new confidence and a new love in your heart. This is the life of faith. This is a growing faith, moving from superficial, short-term, sign-seeking to long-term, informed, and committed. Now, let me give you one simple application and a simple story this morning. And it comes from Revelation chapter 3. 
verse 20. Now, Revelation was written by the same John that we've been studying, John's Gospel. Same John wrote this at the end of his life. And the context of our passage here is that this is Jesus Christ writing a letter to this ancient church in the city of Laodicea. These Christians lived in an influent age like ours. But they had become comatose in the way that they were relating to God. They were, frankly, much more interested in stuff. A lot like you and me. In verse 20, Jesus holds out an invitation for change. He says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we often describe this verse as a way that a non-Christian can enter into a friendship with God, which is okay. I think it's a legitimate use of this verse, but that is not the immediate context. The context of this verse was written to existing followers of Jesus. And the call here is for believers to re-engage God in an everyday practical faith as everyday and practical as a meal. Now, why choose a meal to picture this relationship? Because a meal, even more than for us today, represented in a Jewish family, connection, fellowship, intimacy, and to some degree even a celebration. We've said before how in first century Judaism, there was much discussion about the great banquet to be held at the end of history, a, a, a veritable feast. You know, one of my great joys in life is eating. To be a little more specific, one of my great joys in life is eating with my family. When we eat, it's not a time to watch TV. It's not a time to stare at one another. It's not a time to eat as fast as we can before we move on to the more significant activities of the evening. It's something of a celebration. Sometimes a mini celebration. Sometimes a larger celebration. But a meal in this context was a celebration for a Jewish family to come together. This is the backdrop. This is the background of when Jesus shares this idea in Revelation 3. Now, this past Monday, we had such a celebration, a larger one. And for the first time, successfully, we made sushi together. It's really fun. My wife bought all the, you know, about a dozen different ingredients and made sushi rice and we had the seaweed to wrap it in and it was really a blast. Turned out great. We celebrated my wife's birthday. Again, those of you who know her know her birthday's in December and why we would be celebrating it in the middle of summer, that's a different story for a different time. But at our birthday, I want to tell you a little bit about this time. At our birthdays, we take a moment in a spirit of celebration to bless the person that we're celebrating. And so I asked our children to speak into what they appreciated about Louise 
over the last 12 months because it's been an incredibly uh, exhausting 12 months for her. In September 8th, our uh, middle son was hurt in a car accident and uh, took about three months to convalesce and to recuperate in our home. She was an unbelievable, steady, faithful nurse and anchor in that moment. In the middle of that recuperation, her father passed away and required her to be in California for uh, three over three weeks. After the turn of the year, her mother fell and broke her leg and was in acute care for seven weeks. When her mom returned back uh, home, uh, Louise was there for about 10 or 11 days to help her with that transition. In the middle of all that, she found ways to attend baseball games and to support and to encourage each of us uh, in the various things that we were going through. So we had a chance around the intimacy of a meal to bless her, to tell her that she's a great nurse, a great mom, and indeed a great daughter as well. Now, the point of my story is not to tell you how incredible my wife is, though she is. The point is this. The mealtime can be that point of connection. It can be that point of incredible exchanges of family and blessing that takes place around the meal. I think this is the relational connection that Jesus Christ is talking about and describing here. A relational connection, an intimate connection that is somehow symbolized and characterized by the intimacy that a family could share around the dinner table. It is why Christ is knocking on the door of your heart. And the question for us is this, is will we welcome Christ in? Will we welcome Christ in? And so this is my simple everyday application for you. Remember, we're moving from a faith that is not, has no qualifications, has no conditions. It's not just a faith that is in the desperation of the moment, but it is an everyday practical faith that engages the heart of God, that listens to God. And a way that you can do this is by all day long welcoming Christ into your every emotion, into your every experience. It might be the the deadness of the morning or it might be the deadness of the afternoon. God, Christ, I don't feel you, but I welcome you into this morning. I welcome you into the deadness of this afternoon. I welcome you into the anxiety that I feel on Monday morning. I welcome you into this conflict that I'm experiencing. I welcome you into this elation, into this joy of a new child. I welcome you into the joy of a new job. But whatever it is, Christ wants to be a part of our lives, not just for your 15-minute devotional time in the morning. God wants to be a part of your life all throughout the fabric of your day. And this is what a living, growing faith looks and feels like by welcoming Christ, Jesus, into what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what you're going through, giving him ownership, giving him lordship, giving him sovereignty, trusting his sovereign hand, whether it's moments of elation and joy, whether it's moments of anxiety or depression, whatever you're experiencing this week, make as a habit and a practice 
I'm going to welcome Jesus Christ, his lordship, my ownership of him, or his ownership of me. I'm going to welcome him into my world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these few moments we can spend together as we talk about the words of Jesus. And we are amazed at how universal they are. They spoke to the first readers of John's gospel. And they still speak so loudly today. And we pray that, Father, we might learn to welcome you in to everything we go through. Giving you ownership, giving you lordship, learning to follow you in moments of joy, in moments of, of desperation and sorrow. Give us a living, active faith, an everyday faith in you. We entrust these final moments to you as we sing as we give our offering, as we respond back to the living words of Jesus Christ with our prayers, with our songs, with our resources, with the giving of who we are. Father, if someone here this morning is still far from you and they sense this morning that you are um, knocking on the door of their spirit, Maybe using circumstances. Maybe using another person. Father, we ask that you might show them uh, and guide them in the way that they can open up their heart and say yes to you and give you their lives. Even this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I prayed, we're going to now take a little time here to sing, offer prayers, to respond to what the Holy Spirit may be saying to you. Um, if you have uh, anything on your comment card, a prayer request or a commitment, involvement in some activity, be sure to place that in the basket. Um, our offering is an opportunity for us to respond to God to show our love for him and to support the ministry of this church here and, uh, and around the world. So let's, let's respond in worship.